I didn't have any idea as I was preparing these last couple days that this morning there would be um, public formal commitment to the body of Christ here at Mabel. Last evening, we talked a fair bit about the church, about the body of Christ, looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and, um, and the realities of, of being a part of, of Christ's body. I have a certain trepidation about this message this morning, not because I'm uncertain about the subject, um, I feel confident I'm supposed to share on the subject, but there are two specific concerns I have um, weighing fairly heavy right now. One is I'm concerned that I'm not going to be able to make, make clear my points, um, especially not be able to uh, convey some of the subtlety. And, and the second concern weighing pretty heavy is that there could be a reaction against part of my premise, and you won't hear me out for, for the fullness of, of what I'm trying to say. Um, I feel like this is a message where I could easily be misquoted, uh, and the, the, the core point I'm trying to present be misportrayed. Um, I remember listening to a recording of Brother Edwin Eby uh, sharing a message, and he said, some of you are going to take what I just said and tell people that I said XYZ is okay. That's not what I just said, and please don't misquote me. Um, and I have a little bit of, of that uh, feeling here this morning. And, and some, of this, some of this burden is because it's, it's hard for me to get my concepts into words, and not have to give you, you know, pages of footnotes to take home. Um, I also know from my own experience, Claire mentioned um, that there's a room full of humans here. And I know in my humanity, it's very easy to relay anything I don't agree with as carefully as possible, or maybe as carelessly as possible, to make my point of disagreement. Um, so I'm just asking, please don't misquote me. Please don't intentionally relay the things you, th you have trouble with if you have troubles with them. Um, and frankly, if you want to debate this message with your friends and family, you should make them listen to the podcast first, and then you can debate it. Um, and then bring me back your instruction and your, your correction. Um, if you disagree with me, I do want to hear it. If you have counterpoints to make, I, want, I need uh, to receive them. And, and part, of, part of the burden is I'm trying to call us to something deeper and it can sound like I'm discounting something that is not quite as deep. Last evening, uh, we talked about the danger of independence or the dangers of independence, danger of an independent spirit, technically. The title of this morning's message is Dangers of Accountability. I am in favor of accountability. It is a valuable and necessary part of the Christian life. We are commanded in the New Testament to be committed to one another. And we saw a picture of that this morning, a, a commitment. Um, I think Brent's and uh, J. 
Jennifer and Sarah know what they got themselves into, but they, they made a pretty big commitment here this morning about the openness and connectedness with you all. Where this, uh, so where this morning's message comes in is the, the dangers. Uh, I'm looking specifically at some of the things accountability is not and some of the dangerous things that can come in the door with our, our structured accountability if we aren't dedicated and proactive to, if we just stop with what we have, we have not gone far enough. Maybe that's, maybe that's the, the simpler way of putting it. Um, I also hadn't thought about this is, the, this is the beginning of a new Sunday school quarter. So this is the Sunday that we get reminded about some of that formal accountability that we do where we're reminded it's time to, um, to check in on how you're doing. There is nothing in this message that will discourage that. And if you're hearing that, you've got a problem in your own heart about your commitment. In, in fact, the message this morning should reinforce that. But what it's intended to do is not let you hang things under, under that banner of accountability that shouldn't be there. Um, I'm, I, I generally prefer to, to jump into scripture that introduces the subject first, but this morning I, I think maybe we need to outline um, some things first and then, and then uh, dig into the scripture. When accountability becomes the focus or priority of our meetings, and how we relate, there are problems. That's where the burden of my heart starts with this this morning. When accountability becomes the focus or priority of our meetings and how we relate, there are problems. We get together and hold each other accountable to God's high calling and to openly share our failures with each other so that we can encourage each other to do better. This is a good thing. Where a problem arises is where that accountability becomes synonymous with brotherhood or becomes a substitute for relationship. So if accountability is the primary or even too large an aspect of our relationships, spiritual growth, here's the danger, spiritual growth can become about what we don't do. Because we tend to use accountability as a tool to help us stop from doing bad things. Um, if my accountability partner or, or group can help me to um, stop wasting time and um, not look at uh, filthy imagery and um, get my, my time and priorities with my family right, or, or, or stop wasting, wasting the time that, that should be going um, into other things. And, you know, you're wasting time on, um, on the news. You're wasting time on this. My accountability partner can help me with that and help me curtail that and stop that. And that is a positive. That is a good thing. But as we celebrate that win, there's a little subtleness in our human nature that would start to, to use that to reinforce the idea that our spiritual growth is about simply cutting out negative behaviors. What am I doing in place of indulging that temptation that my accountability, help, accountability partner helped me stop? 
What am I doing in place of that temptation that we just used accountability to cut out? It's a lot harder to hold each other accountable to what's genuinely profitable because it's, well, it's ultimately different for, for a lot of us. Um, our lives are very different and, and what, what profits you the most today might not be what profits you the most tomorrow in your spiritual walk and, and what you need today the most might not be what I need the most today. And I'm, I'm talking in the practical sense of things. And so it, it's just a lot harder to use, to use a structured tool like that to, um, to address the, the negatives in our life. It's, uh, or the things, the things that we're not doing, it's harder for us to use a, the, the tools of accountability for that. It's, it's much easier to use those tools to knock down the things we're doing that we shouldn't. Think, though, of how many of Jesus' teachings and parables focused on the good left undone, though, rather than the bad we do. I was amazed as I looked at the teaching of Jesus, how much over and over he kept pointing out, not just stop doing that, but over and over again, he was saying, you're not doing the thing you should be doing. And if we just kind of sit back and say, we've got things covered because we've got an accountability structure. We're going to miss a lot of those things. We're going to miss a lot of those things where I'm simply not doing what I should because the structures aren't well suited to help us in that. And that's where we're talking about brotherhood that goes much deeper. It uses the tool of accountability, but it goes so much deeper. Don't ever let those become synonyms for each other because you'll stop before you get where you need to go. And of course, I say all this, and is there someone out there starting to think, well, does that mean it's okay to do wrong things? Well, obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, well, let's, let's stop um, making, uh, making efforts to help each other stop doing wrong things. I'm saying we need to go even deeper. It's pretty hard to hold people accountable to opportunities that are ignored. We don't... We don't have a habit of asking each other, hey, did you walk by any travelers lying in a ditch today? Um, did you neglect to visit someone in prison today? Did you neglect to clothe someone who was naked? Yet what we neglect to do says as much about our spiritual development as what we keep doing that we shouldn't. When we reduce holiness to simply stop sinning, we become incredibly superficial and miss the big picture of what salvation is really all about transformation I'm going to grab a few verses here from uh, starting in Colossians um, a few different letters that Paul wrote we're just going to grab a, a couple verses here and there to start Colossians 1 verse 13. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son of his love. I'm sorry, he, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Transformation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Your walk with God is a walk of transformation, a complete change. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, a very 
familiar verse to many of us. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transformation is top to bottom. It is complete. It is its entire. So, a danger is if, if accountability is the primary or even too large of an aspect of our relationships, spiritual growth can become about the things that we don't do. That's not enough. Spiritual growth is a, is a getting rid of the dirt and filling up with, with the glorious things of God. Not just a getting rid of the dirt. We'll touch on that more later and look at some of what Jesus said about that. Another danger that can come if we're not careful, if accountability is, is the primary or, or even too large an aspect of our relationships, spiritual growth can become something that is achieved through, through just grit and determination. So imagine I start smoking in the next couple weeks. And my accountability partner rightly points out that this is a, a bad thing, a negative thing in my spiritual walk. It's damaging my relationship with God. It's damaging my witness for him. Well, I don't want to give a bad report in our, in our accountability checkup. So over the course of the next few weeks, I quit. We praise God for his work. But if I was gritting it out and quitting because I didn't want to have, I didn't want to have to face my accountability partner with failure, in what way then is, is that accountability structure any different than a secular support group? There are lots of support groups out there that will just help you through grit and determination change things about your life that everybody agrees should be changed. We're called to something even higher than that. The, the fact that my accountability partner in this theoretical situation helped me quit is praiseworthy. That is a valuable thing, but that doesn't make it spiritual. This feeds into a problem that we can all have where we, we can fix some problems, and once we do, we attribute the solution to God. But do we actually go to God with our problems? Is this about God or not? Do we actually get his strength by choice? God wants us to rely on him. God needs our weakness to show his strength. And yet, do I just grit it out because I don't want to face the wrath of man, my accountability partner, and God's not really in the picture? It's got to go deeper than that. Another danger that, that, that is a burden to me and, and a concern to me is if, if accountability is a primary or even too large an aspect of our relationships, well, yeah, it, it just comes down to, to grit. Now, here's one of the obvious sticky points I'm going to struggle to communicate well um, and, and someone could easily pounce on. There is value in stopping a bad thing. We know that. Um, even if stopping it for the wrong reasons or through human means. If I stop driving like a jerk because I want to avoid traffic fines and higher insurance costs, there is still a benefit to the people on the road around me, even though I stop for all the wrong reasons. I'm less likely to die in a traffic accident, less likely to be injured or, or lose money buying a new vehicle. And, and there is still benefit to God. There is... Um, People who know me and know my profession will no longer have my, my bad driving and, and um, 
and the, that attitude and that and that being a mar on, on God's reputation. But I am no closer to God. If my if my motivations are simply I don't want my insurance rates to go up and I'm tired of paying tickets, I have not gained. Okay. I could throw a lot of asterisks in there. Yes, I have gained some things. I've gained some money. I'm not paying taking up. But you get my point. I spiritually am no better off. But God convicting me of my failed testimony as a jerk driver and leading him leading me to a change, then then we're seeing the growth in my life. We want we want the whole package. We don't want just we don't want just the externalities of it. We need to get the whole package. We need to get even deeper. Something that, this is probably the first thing that, that really started starting weighing down on me. If, if accountability is the primary, even too large an aspect of our relationships, we can start to equate accountability and love. And this in turn can train us to see love as simply monitoring one another instead of actually being involved with one another. Ezekiel talks about the watchman on the wall whose responsibility it is to warn Israel of coming invaders. If the invaders come, but the watchmen don't blow their horn, then the blood of the kinsmen is upon them. I've had trouble finding New Testament teaching that tells us to be watchmen over each other, but I find a lot of instruction to love. And yet we, we tend to start at the other end. We need spiritual friendships. As long as we define our relationships by what we shouldn't be doing, we're encouraging people to hide their, their shadow selves from each other and, and from God. Sometimes we're no better than Jonah in thinking we can, hide, we can hide our true selves. But if, if your relationship, if, if relationship between brother so-and-so and brother what's-his-name is, is more just about... monitoring and not about a spiritual friendship built in love then brother what's his name is going to be hiding a fair bit about himself and his relationship with brother so-and-so a problem with many accountability relationships is that they lead to to hedging an incomplete confession people divulge just enough to give the appearance of openness, but they hold back what's, what's deepest in, in their heart. I might tell you that I occasionally spend a little too much time reading the news, but I won't tell you how bad it is. I'll just tell you I've got a little problem, but I'm not going to just open it all the way up and pour out that this is, this is really bad and it's rotting me to the core. As long as we don't trust each other, we'll never be transparent. We're never, and we're, we're always going to have troubles trusting each other when relationships are defined by uh, the clipboards that we bring to our meetings instead of the love that we bring to the meeting. We need to have the kind of brotherhood and relationship where the first thing I do when I struggle or fail is talk to my brother, not the last thing I do, not when it gets so bad that I can't figure out anything else to do. But we need to cultivate the kind of loving relationships that the first thing I do when I have a struggle and when I'm, when I'm feeling, or when I have just straight out failed, let's stop calling everything struggles, when I have sinned, the first thing I need to do, 
the, the first thing that needs to be on my mind is I need to talk to my brother about this. I need his help and support right now to, to, get, me, to get me help. Does a true spiritual loving friendship and brotherhood include accountability? Of course, but it's not defined by it. That's the distinction I'm trying to grab here this morning. It's not defined by it. Instead, spiritual friends help each other recognize God's movement and God's promptings. They encourage each other to stay connected to the vine so that they can produce fruit. And the times these friends need to say tough things to each other, it's with humility and love. And you'd be amazed at... Okay, I'm talking to a room full of Mennonites for the most part. So a lot of you never saw the Mary Poppins movie back in the 80s or whatever it was. There was this whole musical in there about a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The love and humility we have in our relationships with each other in the brotherhood is, is, the, is the sugar or, or the, the lubricant or whatever you want to call it that, that makes those hard conversations move and makes it so that I can take it in and handle it when a brother says, you have messed up. When, when uh, the equivalent of the prophet Nathan going to David comes to my life and says, you have sinned against God and you have sinned against man. When there is love and humility there and there, there is just a true open brotherhood relationship, that works. Let's dig in a little deeper on a couple of items. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start at verse 7. No, I'm sorry, we're going to start at, we'll start at verse 12. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's very important to note, Jesus' statement in verse 12 is extremely proactive. He's not saying that if you don't like being poked in the eye, you shouldn't poke someone else in the eye. Okay, that's covered in what he says. But he says something much more profound. Do for others what you wish others would do for you. It's the proactive side of it. It's not just the, um, if you don't like it, don't do it to someone else. It's if you like it, do it to other people. Do you want to be treated with respect? Respect others. Do you like compassion and the benefit of the doubt in your life? extend it to others. Do you like to be served? Serve others. There, there's a depth there to what we call the golden rule that we often miss. We, we, we dole it out to our children with, you're hitting your brother, would you like to be hit? Oh, well, maybe, okay. You know, you're hitting your sibling, there we go. Would you like to be hit? No, then why are you doing it? But it goes so much deeper than that. It's, it's, you would like the bigger piece of cake. Maybe you should give that to your sibling. And then as we grow up, 
the, the, the outworkings of that get more and more profound. It's not just about whether you're hitting someone or being hit or whether you're getting cake and giving cake. It becomes about how you relate to people, how you approach your brother that you see in sin. And the way you approach him is governed by Jesus' words here. You approach him with the same love that you would want someone to approach you. It also is a motivation to the fact that you will approach someone even when you really don't feel like going and talking to them about something. Because you, in your heart of hearts, don't want to walk away from God. And you want your brother to come to you and help you. The same is true. When you see your brother or your sister struggling, you want to help them because you also want to be helped. This, this is brotherhood. This is being a part of the body of Christ. He tells us that this one principle sums up the entire Old Testament. And in these verses, starting here at verse 12, Jesus defines love without ever using the word. And then he goes straight into um, the narrow gate comparison. Uh, contextually speaking, love in this case is that, is that narrow gate. Hatred and bitterness is the easy road that leads to destruction. Read Jesus' words through, through the kingdom of God filter. This is not just about future salvation that he's talking about. Everything he said wasn't necessarily summed up by asking, do you, do you know where you're going when you die? On the contrary, he, he's laying out the new kingdom and teaching his followers what it looks like to live under the rule of God's kingdom. Don't get me wrong, this, this kingdom of God perspective, it has eternal implications, but, but the application starts now. And the, the Christian life is so much more about how do I get to heaven? If that's your view of the Christian life, you're missing, well, the vast majority of the Christian life. The Christian life is walking with, the, with God in the fullness of his love right here, right now. Think of all the the destruction, the pain, the turmoil in life that comes from our inability to choose what's described here as a narrow road of putting others first. Love leads to life, both here and now and in the world to come. And when we choose the easy path of anger, judgment, bitterness, it always leads to destruction. This, this kingdom of God perspective, I'm saying don't, let, don't allow yourself to think the kingdom of God starts on the other side of eternity. It starts here and now. It does have eternal implications, but, but that application is so much larger than when I get to heaven, this is how it will be. See, we, we are pretty dismissive of people who, who would say, well, See, we take the, the Sermon on the Mount literally. We say, this is how I'm supposed to live and how I'm supposed to relate and how I'm supposed to act. And, and there are some, some people who say, well, no, that's talking about a future. That's a, talking about a future kingdom. And we're very dismissive of that as Anabaptists. We say, no, it's for here and now. This is how I live. This is how Jesus is telling me to live my life. But sometimes we can, we can be nearly as bad off as those who are saying, well, these are for your future kingdom. Because we behave as if our following the instruction of God's word now is simply to give us full life in eternity 
and it's worth the restriction of self here and now. No, if, if that's your perspective on what following God is like, you're missing, you're missing the realities of following God. It's not, well, I'll, I'll live through the restriction here and now so that I get eternal life. That, that's how I approach dieting. I'll live through the restriction of not eating what I want to eat because I know that it will make me healthier in the long run and I'll feel better. Well, the instruction of God now means that we live the full new life in him and his kingdom now. We live the, the life in the kingdom of God as his children now, and we get to live it to the fullest in eternity. Luke 12, verse 15, says, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of things you possess. Successful Christianity, successful spiritual life, does not consist of an abundance of abstaining from wrong. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. That is the Christian life. Jesus didn't say, I was being noisy and you refrained from throwing rocks at me. He talked about the things that we do just as much and even more as the things we stop doing. It's the whole package. We looked at love there in Matthew 7. I once, went, I, I once met uh, an elderly man. Um, he, it was not long before he died. He was a combat vet in um, Korea and Vietnam. He had served, um, served in, I think it was the Marine Corps, in, um, in Korea and in Vietnam. And he saw that he was nearing death. And he, he was concerned about his, his destination and his spiritual life. And he was clinging to one thing that he kept repeating. He kept saying, I never hated anyone. He never hated a single one of those enemy soldiers he shot at. He was there, and, and, and I believed him. Um, I have little reason to doubt him, that, that he was there, and, and his, his driving force was, my responsibility is to protect my country, etc., And so when he pulled the trigger, each of those times, it was not out of hate. And he clung to that, that I never hated anyone. But, he, but he, he, was, he was tormented right then in the lives that he had taken. Well, did God simply call him to not hate his neighbor? God called him to love. That was, that was the disconnect in his life. He hadn't hated these people, and yet he hadn't loved them. And that, that was where the turmoil was coming from. God calls to love, to action, not inaction. I will not count it success if my children grow up to not hate each other, but also don't love each other. That's not a success in, in, in any of our measures. It's a positive. It's, it's the first step, maybe, um, especially depending on what all goes on you know, sometimes you think, well, that's, that's a good first step. They've stopped, uh, stopped being actively, um, there's a word I want and can't come up with it. Um, there's not antipathy anymore, but there's not love yet. Um, don't, don't count it success if your brother or sister passes 
your checklist of thou shalt nots. That's a positive, but you're not being a brother or sister, a spiritual sibling, if that's where you stop. If you simply stop when, when they pass the, the, the list of thou shalt nots, if that's where you stop, you're not being a spiritual sibling. You keep going. That's a positive, but, but it, it needs to go deeper. See, uh, one of the dangers for, for traditional accountability is that it doesn't ask for growth. It, it checks to see if you've shrunk. And I'm sorry, but a lack of regression is not what we are called to. We are called to growth. Now, if you're shrinking, you're obviously not growing. So there's, again, I'm not saying this is not a, a valuable thing. I'm saying don't stop there. Don't be satisfied with relationships that don't influence both. A stopping of shrinking and also a, an encouragement of growth. Relationships need to have both. Don't be satisfied with one that only focuses on one aspect. Are you concerned about your brother the way an OSHA official is concerned about your brother? Or are you concerned about your brother the way God is concerned about your brother? See, OSHA, um, O-S-H-A, it's Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It's the agency in charge of workplace safety in this country. And if you work in certain types of factories or you work at uh, Christian Light across town, um, there are certain things you avoid because you know, well, the OSHA inspector would be unhappy if he saw you doing it, so you're just not going to do it. Think about the kind of things you do or the attitude you take toward complying with, with OSHA, or, or maybe you're, you, um, you work with a building inspector on a project. Think about the attitude you take with complying with OSHA or complying with a building inspector when it's things you're doing only because you know you're supposed to do it. That's not what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to accomplish something so much deeper than that. This isn't a message about ego, but I'll say this now. Your ego is formed by external stuff. Uh, validation, opinions, job, education. Um, and when you focus only on eliminating what I would call external sins, the ones you can tangibly measure where people can see it and say, there's a problem. If, if your focus is only on eliminating those and, and, and you can think of a lot, well, pretty much all the types of sexual sins fall into that. Um, if, if you allow yourself to focus only on the externalities and never go any deeper, church attendance, right theology, and clean living to the external observer become the measure of a true Christian. Jesus, starting in Matthew 5, so very early in his teaching, um, he points right away to how external sins are the, the outworking of an internal problem and that you need full transformation to take care of these. That if all you ever do is focus on your externals, then all you're going to do is shuffle. Um, you're going to be shuffling, shuffling the furniture on the porch. And Jesus, all through, through Matthew 5 through 7, over and over he says, you were told not to, to murder, but I'm telling you the root problem is hate, and you've got to deal with that. 
You were told not to commit adultery. I'm telling you the root problem is lust, and you've got to deal with that. The external is what is pointing to the internal, the down deep problem. And so don't ever stop when you just go, well, the external is taken care of. I can leave now. That's not how it works. Greed, envy, pride, hatred, prejudice, and vanity, they all affect the heart, and yet they can be really hard to see from the outside. And sadly, America not only accepts these sins, but often celebrates them. Greediness is almost a virtue in the American culture at this point. Pride. Those will rot your heart from the inside out. These are sins that a traditional accountability structure has a hard time reaching, but a truly open relationship in Christ can have a huge impact on. Dig deeper. Dig deeper until you can have an impact on your brother and sister, and your brother and sister can have an impact on you that affects all the way down at that level. See, people don't ask me if I'm sticking to my diet, even at my home church. Well, there's one brother who will. He didn't until I mentioned over the pulpit once that people don't ask me if I'm sticking to my diet. And I started wondering about that. Why or why not? Because gluttony isn't a sin that disrupts the brotherhood. And it's definitely not a sin that will keep us out of heaven, right? That's kind of what we think. But it's not disruptive to the brotherhood. Therefore, there aren't questions about what I'm doing Sin separates us from God. Sin crushes our spirituality and starts eating away at our connection with God. As soon as sin has a place in my life, it is chewing away at that connection between me and God. We must move past the mindset of what's going to keep me out of heaven and realize that my calling to a holy, vibrant, transformed life and a full relationship with God, that calling is for right now. Our relationships in the brotherhood won't work without love and accountability won't work without love. If you can't dig deeper, you will be stuck. In Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. It fascinates me that in in that passage, Paul does not give me a list of things I'm not supposed to think about. I'm not told there what not to do. I'm told what to do. And make sure you take this, this home with you. The Christian is called to action, not inaction. The Christian is called to action, not inaction. Ask, seek, knock. Are we as Christians called to abstain from hate? Yes. We're, we're, we're to not do hating. But is that really the point? Well, Jesus said, love your enemies. Paul said, um, no, it was Peter that said, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Are we as Christians called to abstain from pride? Philippians 2, uh, let nothing be done through um, selfish ambition or conceit. Well, is the whole point to be empty of ourselves? Is the point to be empty? No, the point is to be empty of ourselves to make room for God. That verse in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. We're empty of ourselves to make room for God and for our, our 
view of each other. The, getting rid of pride in my life isn't the point. Getting rid of pride is getting it out of the way so I can get God in there. It's to get me out of the way, but not just so I can be empty of me. It's so I can be full of God. Uh, in Romans 13, we read, we put off sin and put on Jesus. That's in Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. And so it's not just that we don't retaliate when somebody does something to us, but we do respond to evil with good. It's always a multi-step process. It's ne it never stops with just the inaction, but we are in turn called to action. For the sake of time, we won't read it. Um, take a note of Colossians 3, verses 5 through 15. 5 through 9, Paul gives a big list of things that he says, put to death these things. And so he talks about things like uh, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, blasphemy, filthy language, etc. He gives a great big list of things that he says, you put these to death in your life. And if you stop with verse 9, you could almost think, well then, if I put all these things off, I'm, that sounds like a good Christian. But then he keeps going, not, uh, verses 10 through 15 is where he says, and put on. And then he talks about how you put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. When you drain the, the bad out of your life, you need to then fill in with the good that God has called you to put there. That sounds like a Christian. All too often, though, we can fall into thinking, well, as long as the person put off the list of nasty things that Paul gave in the first set of verses, sounds like a Christian. No, the Christian, the true Christian is the one that you find at the end of the verses, at verse 15. He has put off those things, but he's put on the, the fullness of what God has called him to. Many people think the Christian life is one of abstaining, of emptying, of giving up. They're only seeing the front part of the journey where we are giving up things, we are abstaining from things, but it's to make room for the filling. And of course, there are benefits that come directly from abstaining. When we're talking about sin, um, God's way is right because it's right, because he is right. His way is not whimsical. It is, it is foundationally true. And so obviously, as soon as I stop doing the things that I'm told to put off, there is benefit in my life. But there will not be full growth until I'm putting on the things that God tells me to put on. An example of that would be in um, Philippians 2. We're told to put off complaining. The end goal is not to make you shut your mouth. Um, in Hebrews 13, we're told to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Well, you can't do that. You can't praise God while you complain. So there is a benefit to putting off complaining. You're simply told, put off complaining. But you're, the God's not saying zip your lip. He's saying, what comes out of your mouth is to be praise. And so get complaining out of there. Don't ever be satisfied with only taking the first step of getting rid of the negative. And obviously, the very act of complaining is detrimental to us, to our brothers and sisters. It's displeasing to God. So we do gain as soon as we stop the complaining. But we're not yet where God wants us to be until we do what he wants. So when God says, don't, to rid us of sin, don't ever stop there. 
We have to look forward and figure out then what he wants us to do. Remember, the Christian's calling is one of action, not inaction. So every time you find a don't in your life, find the corresponding do. Anytime there's something in your life that, okay, let's say it's in, in your accountability meeting with your accountability partner, and there's something in your life that you see this needs to come out, don't be satisfied with, well, I got that out. Also then look and, and figure out what does God want me to put in my life here in the place of this thing that was not supposed to be here. Before we close, let's go to Luke 11 um, quickly. Luke 11, I want to read verses 24 through 26. This is Jesus teaching. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. If you are struggling, if you are fighting sin in your life, cutting the action, stopping, giving up what you know God is telling you to give up, that's only the first step. All those times Paul says flee, flee fornication, flee from idolatry, flee youthful lust. Is the point to just keep running? No, the point is you run away from the sin to God. If, if you flee from sin and don't fill your life with God and good, according to this teaching of Jesus in, in Luke 11, sin is coming back and bringing friends. If, you're, if you just go through life trying to rid yourself of sin and never try to actually fill it with what God's calling you to fill it, sin's coming back and it's bringing a party. God needs you to be saved. God wants you to be saved from the effects of sin. He needs you to open up that space so he can get in there. God and sin cannot cohabitate. There's only one throne in your heart. The Christian life, it's about the doing. And in Ephesians, we read about redeeming the time. Too often, we can have the mindset of, of almost waiting it out and trying not to mess up. If, if your thought is, as long as I don't do anything wrong, God is happy. Read Matthew 25. I was sick, you visited me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. You will not stand at judgment and say, God, I avoided doing wrong things. You're called to action. But all too often, our thought pattern is, as long as I avoid the wrong things, as long as I don't mess up, I'm okay. Paul went from zealous in doing wrong to zealous in doing right. He didn't go from zealous in doing wrong to then just sitting back and saying, well, I'll stop doing that thing I was doing. Step one, get rid of that negative. Get rid of that thing that isn't supposed to be there. But never forget step two, which is find what God wants in its place. I'm finding when, when God asks me to give something up, when he reaches in and says, no, I need to give it up and figure out then what he wants me to do. So to wrap this up, uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building up of itself in love. Paul, Paul talks a lot about edifying. Um, in First Thessalonians, he talks about comforting and edifying one another. In Romans, multiple times he talks about pursuing things that make for peace and the things that may edify one another. Um, each pleases neighbor for his good leading to edification. This is, my, this is my burden for you this morning, that you don't stop short. Don't be satisfied with just stunting, stunting the, um, the spiritual shrinkage in your brother and sister's life. Use, use the tools of accountability. We are accountable to each other. But don't be satisfied to just say, well, he, uh, he didn't shrink in spirituality at all this month, so that is not what we are called to. We are called to edification, to building up, keep digging, love each other. It, it gets messy because suddenly you've got to actually trust each other. But it's the only way it's going to work. Are you concerned about each other the way an OSHA official is concerned about people? Are you concerned about each other the way God is concerned about people? We are accountable to each other and so much more. I'll close by reading a couple of verses from Colossians 1. <clears throat> Colossians 1 verses 9 through 11. May this truly be our prayer for one another and truly be our ambition for one another. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. If that is your prayer for your brother or your sister when you sit down with them, and ask that question, how's it going? Then this can work. Thank you for your time and your attention. Sorry for going a little long here.